Simple Beep, episode 43, Help. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And we have quite a lot of follow-up at the beginning of this show. Uh, so our last episode was episode 42, and we decided to dedicate that to the legacy of Douglas Adams and his experience with the Mac. And uh, as we kind of expected, I think, a lot of our listeners are also big Douglas Adams fans. <laughs> and uh, we we put out the call at the end of the episode for, hey, you probably know more about Douglas Adams than we do, even though we've uh, researched up for this episode. <laughs> and uh, we got back a lot of really interesting stuff from some of our listeners. And one of the things that we got was we talked about the game Starship Titanic, which was uh, written and kind of produced by Douglas Adams. And we linked to the still existing and mostly functional website for the game. But Tim sent us on Twitter, he sent us a photo of his complete copy of Starship Titanic, which came with three CDs, a 17-page book, a 176-page book, and a pair of red-blue 3D glasses, which were apparently used at some point during the game. Yeah, that last part was what impressed me the most. I mean, like this was a full spread <laughs> in this photo, but the fact that the game made use of the like what what was that technology called? Like not rotoscoping, but stereoscopic. Stereoscopic, yeah, 3D glasses uh really impressed me. And and the really bad kind that make it impossible to have anything any sort of meaningful color. Yep. But it was also, I mean, it's a really good indication of the era of this game, we talked a little bit about, oh, it looks like it came on multiple CDs or DVD. Uh, it was definitely multiple CDs, and it shows, like, this was the end of the era of boxed software, and they used that to its full extent. They're like, we are not just putting air in this box. Another piece of follow-up from listener Drew, uh, he said he wrote in on Twitter with a little-known fact, Douglas Adams also wrote several scripts for Doctor Who during the 70s. And uh, at first, he went under the pen name David Agnew. Which makes sense, D-A. Yeah. Uh, I, unfortunately, I think, am not a, a big Doctor Who fan, but I know of its its broad cultural impact. And uh, it's, you know, just that much cooler to see that Douglas Adams also had a hand in this, like, very long-running, much-beloved show. Knowing that the Doctor featured in the Hyperland video was about the... Uh... <laughs> full extent of my Doctor Who knowledge. I will admit that that's not a piece of my fandom. Right. I know that the TARDIS is bigger on the inside. That's about it. Yep. <laughs> we'll leave that there. And uh, listener Andreas sent us in an email with a few interesting things about Douglas Adams and his use of technology. Uh, one of the things that we talked about was that we thought that Douglas Adams would have really loved Wikipedia, although he didn't live to see it. And it turns out that he started H2G2.com, and this was, like, it was billed as the Hitchhiker's Guide for Earth, and it's still available, and it is a sort of crowdsourced encyclopedia, uh, and it was before the wiki editing model existed, so it was a fully edited encyclopedia where someone would write an entire draft, and it would go to someone else, and they would review it and make changes, and then... Only once it was final would it go on the site and it was in a non-editable form. But it had that same sort of mission or goal as Wikipedia of collecting and chronicling and crowdsourcing the important information about our little piece of the real galaxy. 
One other thing that he uh, mentioned, and there's a link to this on Douglas Adams' website, um, and you can go through and peruse many of his art articles and uh, old writings there. One thing that he wrote was that he hated dongles that came with various bits of technology, and uh, Andrea says this means that he would certainly love the MacBook One <laughs> and uh, all of the things that you need to hang off the side of it to get it to have more than just a single port. And another piece of technology that he uh, was praising as opposed to criticizing was a line of PDAs made by a company called Scion. And I had never seen these before, but they look like uh, mid-90s PDAs. Uh, instead of like the Palm model where you had the little uh, writing area for graffiti text, these had a physical keyboard. Uh, but Andreas says... Taking it to a logical conclusion, I think that Douglas Adams could have embraced an iOS and iPhone-centric lifestyle today because he loved these PDA devices so much that were nowhere near the iOS devices that we have now. Yeah, uh, going back to the Hyperland video, which predicted a lot of stuff, and the Steve Jobs 1997 Q&A that we discussed previously, which also correctly, I'd say more anticipated than predicted a lot of stuff, uh, I think these both of those big uh, luminary figures, yeah, we're, we're almost just waiting for technology in the world to catch up with the way that they wanted to use it. Yeah, so now let's turn to our topic for today. And uh, we're going to start this at the very beginning of the Mac's history. And uh, we're talking about these revolutionary pieces of technology in the follow-up. The thing about getting a brand new revolutionary piece of technology, nothing like nothing that you've ever seen before, is that you need to know how to use it. And to that end, uh, the Macintosh has always had some built-in help features and tutorials. And a cool thing about the, the early classic Macintosh help and tutorials is that they were designed to be uh, like friendly and approachable, not like a you know, small typeset manual with an index that you had to look for, but something that uh, came off just as friendly and approachable as the Mac itself was designed to be starting with the original Macintosh, which came with a guided tour. We have a link to this that'll go in the show notes. And this is from Guidebook Gallery, uh, which is a gu book Gallery. <laughs> yeah. It's a pun. Um, it's a website that chronicles all sorts of GUIs and does as comprehensive a job as it can with lots and lots of screenshots. So uh, the link that we'll put in shows the original Macintosh guided tour and I believe it has a screenshot of every single screen in the tour, along with a full transcript. And when you and I say that, and you think, well, what do you mean a, a transcript? Um, well, the original guided tour came on a single floppy disk, 400k floppy disk, obviously, because it came with the original Macintosh. But it was a probably half hour, I think, 35 minute program that you went through to learn the very basics of the Macintosh and really the very basics of a modern GUI because it would be your first experience with it. And uh, the way that it did this was that it came with a audio cassette tape that you had to go get a cassette player and then put it in and start it. And it would tell you, uh, it, it would basically narrate along the things that were happening on screen and it would tell you to pause and then do some more things. And then when you get to a certain screen, it would tell you, start it up again. Um, and I think that one of the things that is 
very interesting in this, in the very beginning of the transcript. I mean, we won't quote too much of it. You can go look on, on the site yourself. But it really starts from absolute zero because the Macintosh was so new and so different. And so you, you've started off with the cassette tape, which I guess they assumed that you knew how to use. <laughs> This this was this was the given that you had. You you know how to use your tape player. Your Macintosh is another story, and apparently the tape said, "Please find the disc with the title A Guided Tour of Macintosh" and insert it into the disc drive below the screen. So first of all, where the disc drive is, put it in with the metal end first and the label up. Push it all the way in. So this is this is floppy disks one oh one. And then when you when you did this, you would start up your Mac, and this was the boot disk, because there was a single floppy drive. So this was all you were going to be doing with your Mac, was, was learning how to use it at the very outset. And uh, it comes up with a menu screen that has some options that I think are really kind of amusing, and shows that even, you know, this, this is a first-party Apple product. This is, this came with the Mac, and so you would think, well, Apple has has all of their terminology very locked down. They always, you know, they always say things exactly the way that they want to. You think about that in the modern day. Uh, you know, Tim Cook always says uh, iPhone is selling really well right now. He he never says the iPhone, or if he does, it's a slip, right? So you figure that they've really got all their terms perfectly, and uh, but one of the one of the buttons. Uh, early on for an early section of the tour says, show me my electronic desk, um, which is not a thing you, you, you know, know about the desktop on the Macintosh. And that was what they were getting to, but it's sort of an interesting way of approaching it. And then some other uh, funny sections of the tutorial. Why do I have windows? And then when you uh, got towards the end of the tutorial, uh, it was time to play the maze. <laughs> Um, and this was actually a demo application that was housed within the tutorial. Um, there's a middle section of the tutorial where you learn to use the Finder and manipulate Windows. And it seems like it's more or less a functioning facsimile of the Finder. And uh, there's an application in the root level of the disk that appears in the Finder. And it's a little application icon, and its title is AMAZING! in all capitals. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, that's just some like little silly placeholder icon. But no, it's actually a full-fledged application uh, that draws mazes across the entire screen that you have to drag and drop uh, a little marker to get all the way through so you can practice using your mouse and what drag and drop is like. And there are levels of difficulty to this maze in, uh, in the screenshots where you can choose your level of difficulty. It's what I assume are little 32 by 32 black and white icons that show like a preview of how dense uh, the maze area will be with, with pathways instead of like easy, medium, hard. I can just imagine that you know, this was the type of thing where you're like, where, where is that uh, guided tour disc? I want to play a maze. Yeah. Like you would go back to this years later, even though you knew how to use the Mac, because you're like, oh, it had that cool maze game on it. And then um, in the in the main tutorial application, uh, there is a, a a little bit of artwork to kind of guide you through it. Like there's the profile of a face that was used as one of the alert dialog box icons for so long. 
Yeah, this is kind of a super big version of that. It's it's a little little odd. It's like double height. Yeah, and there's a little bit of, of other artwork too, like a, a magician with a bunch of top hats. And you have to, again, you practice your mouse skills going over the top hats to reveal what the magician is pulling out of them. And as I was browsing through these screenshots, I thought like, oh, this all looks like very much the same bitmap uh, black and white style that was in the clip art stacks in HyperCard. Um, so I don't know if it's Susan Kerr or Bill Atkinson or someone else from that team, but it's clear that there is a there's a consistency in the little pixely bitmap art that Apple was putting out at that time. Yeah, these this artwork was clearly made in the bitmap editor that they had that eventually became Mac Paint, and then certainly looks like the tutorial application itself was custom code, especially because it was a boot disk. I mean, it was probably actually very custom code uh, to be able to do that. Uh, but then the functionality is exactly the kind of thing that got folded into HyperCard that users could do on their own. Yeah, I am mean, like, just to close this out, I'm looking through it again right now, and there's a simple maze at the very beginning of mouse skills, uh, separate, like, within the tutorial application, separate from the amazing app, and there's, like, a little mouse that you have to drag, and there's cheese at the middle of the maze, but when the mouse gets there, he's, like, sitting at a table with a nice glass of wine. It definitely has uh, the whimsical touch to it. And so it seemed that Apple would stick with this model for a couple of years, having a, a tutorial that was kind of HyperCard based. You know, you'd have like very specific screens, not unlike HyperCard cards that you would progress through in a logical order that had, you know, it had whimsical illustrations, as we've just talked about, but kind of sparsely illustrated this one bit style. Um, they did update the guided tour. Um, there's a specifically a version that was uh, referencing the Mac Plus model. In 1988, that's also on the GUI guidebook gallery site. We'll also put a link to this in our show notes. And uh, I think the the big change here is that the artwork has been updated. Yeah, also the fact that I think that this was distributed as just a standalone application because at this point you didn't need to have a dedicated boot disk just for the just to launch the tour. So it's uh, become more of a standalone app. But yeah, they've updated the art, uh, whereas it was very sparse on the first one, especially in the main menu. It was basically just that alert face and buttons here. Uh, again, trying to make things be very friendly and welcoming. Uh, the main menu of this guided tour shows you, it has the, the options that you can choose and some explanatory text, but the background is a nice little city street. And, uh, you are looking at the information kiosk, obviously, like tourist information here. Welcome, welcome to Macintosh. And then once you select an option, it goes into more straightforward screens with cards. I think it's safe to call them cards <laughs> uh, and buttons that, that navigate you through. And this one looks a lot more like a, a little bit more like the stock features of the classic Mac OS with buttons with Chicago labels and that sort of thing. But the the main menu and some of the other screens that appear in other sections where you get uh, these little streetscapes, it made me think of the fact that this was not the only time that Apple has used that metaphor, uh, something that we've talked about in previous episodes, uh, and was one of Apple's less successful projects was eWorld. And 
while the art style here is more the 1984 Mac Paint style or that one bit hypercard style, whereas eWorld was the the stylized uh, 256 color dithered <laughs> faux watercolor, yeah, um, sort of top heavy cartoon avatars. <laughs> but it makes me think of the same thing where it's like, look, you're we're going to try to use a metaphor here on you. It's going to be a welcoming metaphor. You know how to get around your town or city, and this is going to work in the same way. Another cool addition to this version of the guided tour is a section called Getting Down to Work, which goes beyond the basics of how to use your computer and how to familiarize yourself with the desktop metaphor and uh, things like that. And it goes through samples of things like word processing, uh, simple drawing programs, and it takes you through a scenario where you work for, I think, like an ad agency <laughs> that's called R Great Advertising, where I s- assume the R stands for really. And uh, there are other fun little touches here where you like write out a a sample memo that talks about a a brand and a logo that you've come up for like a county park. And the name of the park is uh, the Lonesome Wasteland County Park. There are lots of fun little touches in here. Um, and then another thing that I found interesting about this section of this tour is that it highlights the power of MultiFinder, the first uh, time that you could have more than one application running at a time on the Mac. Because I think in previous uh, tutorials like this, it would say something like, open your drawing program, do your your like Lonesome Wasteland County Park logo, copy it to the clipboard, and then quit. <laughs> and then open your word processor to finish your memo where you paste it in. And here it's like, you can just go up to the Apple menu and uh, switch your applications. Both will stay open and you can like continue working in both. Uh, and this is 1988. So that was just a, a fun little call out that I noticed. Yeah, it's interesting that this one goes much further beyond. This This gets into the territory of you know wh- what I thought of in the early 90s and my introduction to the Mac. This is almost like an entire book that you would get, you know, like a Max for Dummies type book where it's like, we're going to take you not only through just the basics of how the finder works, but we're going to teach you about rich text editing and basic graphic tools and, and all that sort of thing as well. And it also looks like it's um, a bit more interactive in terms of showing you things on the screen, getting you to do it, being more free to navigate forward and back through these various tasks. And, uh, as we mentioned uh, about the difference between having this as an application versus a bootable disk in the faux finder in this guided tour, uh, instead of having a floppy disk icon that says guided tour, uh, there's the HD 20, the yes. 20 megabyte hard, hard drive <laughs> that came with the Mac plus. Let's move on now to another suite of standalone applications that, uh, occupy a very certain time period in my mind because I remember treating them almost as games and less as like reference items. And these are the applications Macintosh Basics and Mouse Practice. Yeah, so we we blew through the the first two and the original one goes all the way back to System Software 1. And then you mentioned MultiFinder, which is a System 6 feature. And of course, the numbering between 1 and 6... Um, Somebody knows exactly how that went, but I recall, I, I still, to this day, even as a person who loves this history, goes, well, the original Macintosh came out and it had System 1, and then <laughs> System 6, yep, and then you got MultiFinder. 
Um, but the Macintosh basics and mouse practice, now we are into the System 7 era. Yes. Uh, so color screens are maybe not a assumed to be a given, but they're certainly the norm at this point. Uh, so we've moved beyond the the one color one color uh, dithered art. Um, so these are these are more like I would say brightly animated and illustrated. They're more friendly. They've got cartoon characters leading you through each of the cards and the steps. And uh, something else interesting about them is that they were both made with what was uh, Macromind at the time, Director, which of course eventually became Macromedia and later Adobe through acquisitions. And uh, this was also something that we thought might have been uh, the inspiration or taken inspiration from the Hyperland video in the kind of uh, applications and interface elements that many presentations made in Macromind Director ended up using. It's interesting that Apple started off with kind of in-house custom-coded applications and moved to this third-party framework to create and distribute their uh, their tutorial applications and software. Yeah, I think one of the other things you mentioned about screen technology improving, and one of the things that I think is interesting about the interface of Macintosh Basics in particular is that you get an entire little Macintosh desktop, but it's Kind it's it's not in a window. Obviously, there's no window border around it, but it's not the entire screen. And the rest of the interface is all on black. And it makes it very obvious that you are not actually using the finder. But the notion there is that what well, you couldn't really have done that on the original Macintosh with the 512 pixels across the bottom, because to make a more miniature desktop, it, there's nothing left at that point. But Probably the designers of Macintosh Basics thought, okay, we might not be able to count on full color, but we can assume that many people will have it. We might not be able to totally predict the size of the screen, but 640 by 480 seems pretty likely. So that gives us some extra room to work with to have this little mini safe-to-play-with faux desktop. So again, in Macintosh Basics, there are uh, the basics of using the mouse there are uh, the simple things about the finder, like uh, what's a window, what's the trash, what are folders. Um, but it's all being <laughs> uh, explained to you and guided. Uh, you're guided through it by a little cartoon character who we later find out is named Jay uh, through some behind-the-scenes fun stuff that we'll get to in a moment, uh, who is like wearing his little Apple sweatshirt. <laughs> with a button-down shirt underneath it with the collar sticking out. We'll put a couple of links to uh, first the Macintosh Garden, where if you have your emulator or an older Mac setup, you can get an actual copy of Macintosh Basics or another post at the GUI guidebook gallery that has a whole bunch of screenshots. You can walk through it for yourself. But we'll also put in a link to an, I I never know how to say this website, Imgur, Imgur. (laughs) They, They say it's pronounced Imgur. Imgur. I always pronounced it in (laughs) an imager album from one of the designers behind Macintosh basics of uh, scans from his notebook, where you can see some of the the things that some of the early iterations of the character J some fun stuff about Cleo, the goldfish in a goldfish bowl on the uh, like real world desktop that stands in as a metaphor to help you get used to your Macintosh finder desktop. 
And uh, it's at this point where I should talk about, like, I remember, again, going through this in school computer labs and treating it like a game because there were some elements of it where, uh, you know, it was it was responsive to the actions you took. Specifically, when you get to your real-world desktop that has a, a filing cabinet to the side and some papers on the top that you want to organize, but there's also a little goldfish in a goldfish bowl. And uh, I think he represents the, um, like, some mouse practice so you can, if you like hover your mouse over the goldfish, he does a little swim around the, the circumference of the bowl and uh, you can click and drag the entire goldfish bowl. And uh, if you drag him too close to the edge of the desk, the whole thing goes into the trash can. And then uh, <laughs> practicing clicking itself is if you click the little thing of fish food next to the goldfish bowl, it'll feed him and he'll eat it and he'll get fatter. And then if you are a sadistic little child like I was and you keep clicking dozens and dozens of time, you will overfeed the fish and he will pass away. <laughs> and, oh, no. <laughs> and all of this is uh, – Poor Cleo. Yeah, poor Cleo. And all of this is referenced in the uh, in the one of the designer's uh, notebook scans. So it was fun to go back and see like, oh, yeah, I thought about this. Like should you be able to kill the fish by putting him in the trash or overfeeding him? I went back and forth on this. <laughs> yeah, this notebook is – is amazing. And I think was one of the things that inspired us to uh, actually look at this as a topic for an episode. And you put together some of the basic outline for this, Brian, and I was like, help, really? I mean, like, what is there? And then I remembered this application and then seeing this behind the scenes is, is really incredible. It's one of those lessons of like, I mean, you know, this is good for some people and bad for some people, but if you have cool stuff like this, never throw it away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, because this is a really amazing little piece of history, and it's it's clear that this was not only a working journal, but like a scrapbook of everything that went into this, and all the way down to these original concept art sketches, and then printouts of the bitmap images, and the the workflow or the the flow between the different pages of the tutorial. And then one of the most interesting things is Polaroid photos glued into the notebook where they actually have a real live person with the button down shirt and Apple sweatshirt pointing at a whiteboard and they're taking photos of it to use as references for the images. Because then in one of the uh, more advanced versions of the tutorial, Jay actually like draws some stuff on the screen and it's fully animated. And they went to all of this really incredible effort to get this all together. And then they have a, uh, a silly picture of him as an astronaut. Uh, yeah. The caption on that one is uh, when NASA t took a Macintosh portable up in a space shuttle, they wanted to make sure that uh, the astronauts knew what they were doing when they got up there. So they made sure to include a copy of Macintosh basics on the portable. So I guess the, uh, this designer commissioned uh, a custom version of Jay wearing a, a space helmet. <laughs> so similar to Macintosh basics, there was another application called mouse practice. And I remember this one, this one was also on the school computers and when you were craving for a game and could not sneak in your, your own floppy disk full of games. Um, this is what you got. Um, and many, one of the reasons that you might not be able to sneak in your own floppy disk full of games is because the computers were running at ease. But in fact, mouse practice was released in 1992 and it was bundled with at ease. And mouse practice 
is more limited in its scope, uh, hence its name. It's also available on Macintosh Garden, and it has a unifying theme of underwater exploration where you have to control a diver who goes and and finds whales and coral and and buried treasure and buried treasure and you know uses some of the the gameplay conceits that were were novel to a point and click type of game as opposed to a keyboard based game like oh we're in the deep ocean and it's dark down here and all we have is a flashlight and so there's just a little circle of light that you control with the mouse and you have to go and, and reveal things and reveal everything successfully to, to move on to the next screen, thereby proving just how well you know how to use the mouse. But again, in these tutorials, they were assuming essentially nothing because uh, I think there's a screen early in Macintosh Basics where, yes, it, it shows an Apple desktop bus mouse one, uh, the one that had the hard edges. And it has a, a picture of that sitting on a mouse pad next to the keyboard. And Jay is speaking to you, and he says, first, you need to know how to hold the mouse. And uh, this was important in 1987, 1988, and I think I've mentioned this before. It's something that is no longer taught in schools. <laughs> yep. And therefore, I have tons of coworkers who hold their mice in completely novel and strange ways, <laughs> including upside down and backwards. Yeah, uh, that is uh, a perfect segue into this note you've written here. I think it's it's for the Macintosh Basics listing on the Macintosh Garden. You say there's only one, you noticed, there's only one comment. Oh, yeah. And it's it's from user CyberSkull. <laughs> and he says, is there anything like this for newer Macs? <laughs> and the answer is, no, sorry, CyberSkull, not really. <laughs> so, yeah, there really aren't any of these standalone tutorial apps that exist, uh, even let alone today, but even in the later phases of the classic Mac. And, and, and the trend has been instead to move to more integrated help systems instead of sitting you down the first time that you're going to use a Mac and really making sure that you've gone through the basics and know how you're going to play some games, do some work, manipulate your files and folders and the finder. Instead, we figure, okay, well, you've probably used a computer before, so you can jump in a little bit. We'll give you the benefit of the doubt and assume that you know how to hold a mouse. <laughs> and then we'll really work more on if you get stuck or you need to know how a particular feature works, then you can activate a help system that will give you just the little bit of information you need in context. Yes. Uh, for context, the Macintosh basics and mouse practice, like Ed mentioned, came out around the System 7 era, the early 90s, 1990 through 92. And uh, with System 7, which was released in 1991, we saw the first version of this kind of uh, built into the system contextual help. And it was, of course, balloon help. The uh, there's a new menu added to the menu bar with a little speech bubble and a question in it to the immediate left of the application menu on the right end of the screen. And when you turned balloon help on and your mouse cursor hovered over items that had been coded to include a piece of balloon help, you'd get a little cartoon speech bubble with a glorious bitmapped Geneva nine point font 
that included the appropriate help text. Or an image, if you, uh, if you put that in there, the, the famous escape velocity. What are you looking at? <laughs> exactly. And um, I think uh, balloon help, when looked back at, uh, is not really regarded so fondly because its utility is pretty limited. First, the mode has to be on. Second, it is literally contextual. The, the messages only appear when your mouse is hovering over one item. And uh, like, so if, for example, if you wanted to have full context about all the UI items currently on the screen, you would have to consistently roll your mouse over all of them instead of just enabling them all at once. And the limited amount of text that you could put in there was also a factor. I mean, there would be things like, I think if you moused over like the QuickTime extension, it would try to explain what QuickTime does in you know, 140 characters or less kind of thing. And and a lot of these were, were just like, this is an application, it does things. This is an extension, it adds features to your system. Very sort of dry, not not really helpful. It's not going to teach you how to use the computer. It's more just putting a caption on everything. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very supplementary because as we've talked about, there still could be these standalone uh, broader tutorial applications that you could uh, run and then get out of. And of course, this is still an era where printed manuals came with things. So balloon help is really there just to be like the, the nice superficial layer. That said though, things like balloon help still exist today. And the legacy of, Balloon Help lives on in tooltips, which are available on pretty much every desktop computing platform. And with tooltips, instead of saying, okay, you need to activate a particular mode that is system-wide, and then things will start spouting messages as soon as you point to them, the concept of a tooltip is, well, that can always be there behind the scenes. You just have to leave the mouse hovering in a particular place. And if you do that, we'll interpret that as maybe you want to know a little bit more about that thing that you pointed to. And that's, again, the kind of amount of help that balloon help could offer is the same as you get with tooltips. And I think that tooltips have their place, especially if you're learning a new interface and the people who have designed it think that they've come up with icons that have greater information density. They don't need to put words on things. Those words can be there in the background. And we're also familiar with tooltips now that, of course, you can do things like play around with the tooltips, uh, just like you could play around with balloon help and sort of subvert what you think is going to happen with the tooltips. I think uh, one of the most famous examples of that is the comic XKCD, where every day... Uh, in a web browser, if you have any image and you put alt text on the image, it will appear in a tooltip. And every comic on XKCD has alt text for the comic, but it doesn't say what's in the comic. It has some additional joke behind it. And so uh, you always have to go to that. And uh, since tooltips relying on mouse over states are not really available on touch devices like smartphones... Uh, the XKCD mobile website has a separate button that you can click to see the alt text. <laughs> so it's kind of funny how that's <laughs> all come around and around uh, upon itself. But tooltips uh, are here to this day. In fact, I think it was yesterday or today at work, I learned something new via a tooltip. Um, 
So I was working in Text Wrangler and I was doing a complex find and replace. And I'm like, I do this all the time. And when I'm done typing in my find and replace, I have to grab the mouse and click replace all. There must be a keyboard shortcut for this. Where will I find it? How will I do this? And then I just put the mouse over the replace all button and left it there. Lo and behold, command option equals. <laughs> uh, so there's... They're still useful, still definitely have their place. But Balloon Help itself, um, rather than tooltips, this modal way of accessing that kind of information, came in System 7 and stayed all the way through the end of the classic era of macOS. That doesn't mean it was the only uh, digital help component of the macOS, uh, classic macOS. In System 7.5, which came out in 1994, Apple introduced Apple Guide. And this is really the beginning of a system-wide like modal help window, which in some form still exists today in uh, OS X slash <laughs> the Mac OS back from the dead uh, product naming scheme. Apple Guide wasn't just a, a digital digitized help system that uh, had not only things about the hardware you were using and the Macintosh system software uh, in general, but could also accommodate help manuals for uh, distinct applications and, and pieces of software that uh, ran on the Mac OS, including third-party software. Uh, again, it wasn't just limited to some kind of browser for these digital help documents. It also had some cool system-level interactive features that could, true to its name, guide the user through certain workflows. Yeah, and I think that this is really the sweet spot for useful help applications on the Mac. Because what Apple Guide did was, it, it was a logical progression from Macintosh Basics. So, or, or not Macintosh Basics, all the way back to the original guided tour. So in that original guided tour, you had a boot disk. This was all that you were going to see while the Macintosh was on for that session. Then you got to Macintosh Basics, and it was this standalone app that put together this little fake finder sandbox that you could learn in. But Apple Guide took it a step further and said, you're using your Mac right now, and you need a tutorial. We'll overlay the tutorial on what you're using right now and actually walk you through all of the steps, not on some little sandbox playground, not on some fake document that we ginned up for you where you're working for the fictional ad agency. It's going to work on the document that you're using now in the application that you're using now. And of course, that's an interesting interface challenge. How are you going to make it clear that there is some help going on and then there's the task at hand, especially for a user who's turning to this feature because they're confused? And so... I think that the design of Apple Guide was very good. So it was one of the, I mean, it came with System 7.5, and I don't know if they were brand new to System 7.5, but it used the small floating palette window. So it had the half-size title bar. And even beyond that, because you might encounter those type of floating palettes in an application, beyond that, the buttons and the background of the window were textured and styled so that they didn't look like quite anything else on the system. And 
because it was a floating palette window, it would overlay whatever you were doing, but it was movable so it could get out of the way. And then it also had the ability to really get in the way and get in and show you things directly because it had this system level hook where if it was, if the next step was you need to go to file and choose print, for example, it would highlight the file menu by drawing a big red circle around it as if there were a marker drawing on your screen. It would animate in, in translucent, big, thick red outline. Click on this menu. The menu would drop down, and then it would highlight the thing that you needed to select. And it walked you through all these stages. And it also had um, then buttons where you would step through each step of the instructions. And if you hadn't done what it said, like if it said you need to go to file and then print, because it was watching all of the menu events at a system level, if you hadn't actually done it and you click next, it'd be like, no, 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 you didn't do it. Go back. I will circle it again for you. <laughs> um, so it was really robust in that way. And, you know, that's pretty remarkable even for just the built-in apps. And you would think, okay, for the built-in apps, they could, you know, or just the Finder they could build that into the Finder application itself. But it was a system-wide framework. It had uh, it had these inits, these extensions, uh, that enabled it regardless of where you were. And then if you had the right resources and bundles and stuff in your app, uh, it was available for, for all developers. And another smaller piece of UI, it, um, it changed the help menu icon from balloon help the little speech bubble with a question mark to the uh the iconography for the entire apple guide system which was a big light bulb with a question mark in it and another example of something that's not only fun but actually useful and and makes it more personable there was a huh button <laughs> in a lot of the uh floating palettes which if the developer had written uh, accompanying literature uh, would provide an even more like simplified level of detail. Uh, so like if it said like go to file, choose print and turn copies up to two or something like that. If the home button was activated and the user clicked it, it might say like, oh, okay, uh, here, we're going to highlight all the things. We're going to show you where all these things are. We're going to tell you maybe if you don't know what copies means, it means <laughs> like it will print two, two replicas of the same thing. It would, it, it had this, uh, this ability to go one level of explanation further, um, which like helped both levels of uh, expertise. If you didn't need that level, it was always obscured behind the hum button. If you did, it was there and you can get to it very quickly. Yeah. And the built-in Apple Guide tutorials were very conversational. The buttons were labeled with these conversational responses, like I did it or huh or go back as opposed to okay and cancel and the kinds of things that were precisely the things that might confuse users in the first place. And, uh, you know, that's been a constant struggle of user interface design for as long as GUIs have existed. What do I label my buttons? How do I make them clear to users? And, uh, Apple has done better and worse on that at various stages. Um, don't try to figure out what the buttons do in iTunes right now. <laughs> Uh, but in in many other uh, first party apps, uh, they they've updated those guidelines and become a lot more explicit. Like, 
you know, if, if the button is going to delete something, don't make it say, okay, make it say delete foo, you know, like make, make it very clear. And, and Apple guide, I think was very clear. Yeah, I agree. Considering the technology that was available at the time, the kind of user who was probably coming to the Mac at the system 7.5 era, I think Apple guide it probably stands very high on the list of uh, user education, not just user experience and user interface, but user education. Yeah. And you mentioned the technology that's available at the time. And I think that this is a real inflection point in the history of help, uh, <laughs> computerized help in general, as we move beyond Apple Guide. Because what was Apple Guide? It was built in help. It was included in the applications that you had. And the next thing that we got to was called Info Center in Mac OS 8. And that was in 1997. Recall that Apple Guide was released in 1994. And so what's the big thing that's happened between 1994 and 1997? It's the World Wide Web. And everything was moving to the web. And the web was the best thing since sliced bread. And that meant that, of course, we can offer the best help and tutorial and reference experience through a web-like interface. And this is exactly what InfoCenter was. InfoCenter was one of those applications with an alias that showed up every time that you installed macOS 8 or updated macOS 8, much to my annoyance. (laughs) And it was mostly HTML files that were distributed with the operating system and resided on disk and really did. And then like they opened up in a web browser and you could see like the file colon slash 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 URLs with the percent encoding for spaces and the whole thing. Like it was just like very transparently, here are some HTML documents. And then of course, if you had internet access, it could also link out to HTML documents on the web And I get why everyone thought that this was going to be so great. It was because, well, if we have to distribute help with the application, what if something changes? Or what if we missed something? The the thing about having online help, not online in the sense of active as you use it, but online as in over the internet help is we can always update it. But the problem is that this meant that I think eventually it became an excuse for, well, the help doesn't have to be complete when we distribute it the first time, which was a huge problem. And to me, I feel like this was, like I said, an inflection point when help kind of stopped being useful. Because uh, I'm looking now at this image we'll put in the show notes that's a screenshot of the macOS Info Center, which is this little stripped-down web browser type of view, or maybe actually just be running in a web browser. I think it might be full Internet Explorer. Full Internet Explorer. I, I didn't recognize you. Yeah. And it just looks like the Apple website from this time. And it says Mac OS Info Center, and it's got uh, the little, like, three panes. Show me what I can do. Help me solve a problem. Help me explore the Internet. And it's like, there's no search box here. There's, <laughs> I mean, there's nothing here. And you know that show me what I can do okay, great, that kind of harkens back to the Macintosh Basics. It even has that, like, photograph of the mouse sitting next to the keyboard, like, you might need to know how this works. But you know that this, like, static HTML page is not going to give you the same 
rich introduction that Jay was able to give you in Macintosh Basics. And so it's moving towards this more of like, dear user, it's your fault that you don't know how you how to use this. Here's a bunch of stuff. I hope you figure it out. <laughs> and, you know, that's a little bit frustrating, especially when you could see just how useful Apple Guide was. And I remember using it and thinking that it was was really useful. Um, but this was this was the next step. It was moving to these online help systems. Right. In Mac OS 8, this, this info center built around HTML files was kind of like the crown jewel of the help system. And it truly was now called the help system. The light bulb help menu uh, stopped being represented by an icon on the right edge of the menu bar and instead became the help like written out word help menu bar that would always be the last menu text menu uh, starting from the left. Man, I remember when that menu moved and longtime Mac users, they had a small crisis, <clears throat> especially when using the finder that the last menu was no longer special. Yeah, I remember that too. <laughs> um, and so we've, we've got the help uh, kind of umbrella in Mac OS 8. And then finally in 8.5, which came out a year later in 1998, like all these kind of disparate parts of help, the info center that was more internet focused, the help that was still the remnants of Apple Guide and local on-disk files all merged to become the help center. And the old Apple Guide content was uh, mostly converted and developers were encouraged to start writing uh, in HTML. So everything was unified into this one system and the the help center, or I think it was called help viewer application to read all of this material was basically a tiny internet browser that rendered the HTML supported, you know, hypertext linking so you could jump from section to section. Uh, but other than that, it was it was basically little little web pages. Oh, and there's frames. Yes, yeah, frames. <laughs> Who remembers frames? <laughs> And that was how you were supposed to learn how to use your computer. And again, this is this is the days of macOS 8.5. And as we know, the classic macOS only went a little bit farther to version 9.2. And more or less, this help center is how the classic macOS went out as far as help systems are concerned. So we'll we'll wrap this up with a little bit of discussion of the state of help in OS X. Uh, so... In the early versions of OS X, there was another application that was the Help Viewer. And I'm not sure at what point in the macOS history we got the system-wide keyboard shortcut for Help, which is Command question mark, or uh, people will fight over whether it should be written as Command Shift slash. <laughs> right. But it makes sense. You, you know, Command and the question mark, um, that'll bring you to Help. The problem is that that'll bring you to help anywhere in the operating system. And in the early versions of OS X, there was a standalone help viewer app. And it, I don't know what it did. Um, I don't, I don't know if it probably wasn't even WebKit based in the very early, uh, versions of OS X because Apple wasn't really using WebKit until Safari was released, but it was viewing these HTML documents and if you accidentally hit command question mark, oh, woe is you. <laughs> you might as well have just crashed your machine. Yeah. Because it took so long to load. And even if you had a legitimate question that you wanted help for, 
you are not going to go there anymore because you knew that it was like the worst bundled app on your entire system. And so help really got kind of pushed to the side and it was this thing where there were the built-in help files and then with each application, Apple encouraged developers to write their own HTML files that were not just HTML files, but also corresponded to this certain format that would then fit nicely in the help viewer, be indexable and searchable. I think that was what took it so long. So it was trying to index all of your application's help files. Um, and what this meant was that there was a period I think, you know, pretty much the entire time that I was in college, like four or five years in the early history of OS X, where developers just weren't writing help documentation that went with their applications. But the help menu was a system-wide feature, that menu that got moved from the right side over to the left side. And it's always the last menu. It still is to this day. And you would open up that help menu and it would say something like, no help to display. I mean... Just how how frustrating must that have been for people who genuinely wanted help? Um, and that was how it was for a very long time in, in OS X, several years. Of course, the thing that was supplanting these built-in help documentation systems were actual web pages. Because the fact of the matter was that the help viewer was so bad that you could give your users a better experience by just putting a link in the help menu. It says, look at our website. Um, or even just counting on people to be savvy enough to Google for the name of the application or maybe even the name of the application and the issue that they were having and land on documentation on your website that you had more full control over and would give them better experience. And that's like, it's this like full abdication of uh, of the operating system saying, like, this is a place where it will be welcoming and friendly and all of your apps will be able to guide you through what you need. It's like, nope, go to the web. Fortunately, though, the help menu is no longer entirely useless uh, in OS X. In fact, it's really, really useful, but not, not for the kind of guided help that we talked about earlier and was prevalent in the classic Mac. But... Later on in the macOS, uh, I believe starting in Leopard, um, in Tiger, one version before that was the introduction of Spotlight. And Apple did another thing that kind of offended Mac purists <laughs> with the in introduction of Spotlight, which was a menu that doesn't behave quite like a menu because it's got a search field at the top. And that was working well for Spotlight for system-wide search. And they realized that that would also be a good feature to have in the help menu, because the number one thing you wanted to do when you were activating help is search for the problem that you have. But what they did as well is uh, w when you press that system-wide hotkey, instead of launching an entire separate app, which is clearly not what you wanted, it just opens up the help menu and activates that search field. And if you type in that search field, not only does it search system-wide help topics, which I still find not particularly useful, but the thing that it does is it searches all of the menu items in the current application, including menu items that are buried in submenus. And I think like the, you know, the super common instance of this is like you're doing word processing and you need to like superscript or subscript or strike through some text. And they're in these like buried form, you know, font format submenus and they don't have keyboard shortcuts 
And so, oh, the one that I always use in pages uh, for small caps. Mm -hmm. No keyboard shortcut for that. But you just activate the help menu and type caps. And not only does it select it for you, it shows you which menu it's in. Like it unfolds that menu, but then the item is selected. So all you have to do is hit return and it activates the menu command. Or you can mouse over and risk messing up all of the submenus that it's opened. And in not really a throwback to Apple Guide where there'd be a fun little interface cue, there's a, it's not a red highlighter, but instead, if you, uh, I think it's if you mouse over the result in the help menu for the menu item that corresponds to your search term, yeah, and you can access those with arrow keys as well. Oh, right, right. If you activate the the menu item for the search result, it will, like Ed said, open up the menu where the menu item resides, even if it is a submenu. And if you leave that search result focused for a while, a uh, <laughs> a giant arrow <laughs> will uh, appear that points to it. So it's not even enough that like, hey, this menu is open and the item is selected. No, here it is. It's not like a canonical arrow either. It's like one of those... Um it's like one of those little stickers if you have like a document, like your accountant sends you your tax forms and it's like sign here. Yeah. And the funny thing about them is um, I guess they figured it's like the same blue highlight color as the the menu highlight. And just to make it clear what's going on there and that it's not some other interface element, um, if you leave it in that configuration, the arrow just sort of slowly undulates <laughs> in a little circle like, look over here. Hey, look hey, over here. Hey. This is what you were looking for. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, maybe not the world's most robust help system, but um, it lives on. And but but honestly, what else do you use the help menu for? <laughs> I, I I search for menu items, and occasionally you'll have something like a check for updates option in there, although it's more frequently in the application menu. And really, I think that's where the state of Macintosh system help is today. Yeah, I think it's a full arc. You know, it started it started from the beginning and really ran its course. And and like I said, the most robust help that's available now is on the web. And you know, with the modern web, it's more robust than it ever has been before. And a lot of it is some of it is being done by the people who develop the software. But I think that some of you know, the most useful help that I've seen is not like low production grade YouTube videos, but people who do like really good screencasts that have like good production values and they use the screencasting software that shows the keys that they're pressing and has that same kind of feel of like a full walkthrough that bespoke custom built apps or um, or system wide features in the classic Mac OS had. So the information is still available, but it lives somewhere completely different now. So that's it for this episode. Like with many of our episodes, we've gathered a lot of links to share with you that will be in our show notes. But if we've missed any uh, of your favorite items from classic Mac OS and classic system software help and tutorial bits of UI and, and software, please share them with us. You can get in touch with us at our website, simplebeep.com. And you can also find the show notes there, simplebeep.com slash episodes. Yeah, I'm sure that there are some wonderful little balloon help Easter eggs that we still have not seen. <laughs> uh, of course, you can also get in touch with us on Twitter. The show Twitter is at simple underscore beep. 
And you can find each of us on Twitter individually. I'm at eCormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. And I'm at Bisuto, B-S-U-T-O. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.